You're tuned into the Velo News Podcast. I'm Spencer Paulison. Talking to Andrew Hood today from law, from far away in Spain on Skype. Hoodie, how's it going over there? Pretty good, Spencer. It's good to be back on the podcast. It's been a few weeks for me. I was uh, in Australia for the two down under, and then I went skiing in Canada for a week. Uh, talk about extremes, man. Went from 45 degrees Celsius, which is about 120 in the outback, to minus 20 in the Canadian Rockies, which is about, I don't know, minus 10 Fahrenheit. <laughs> quite a, quite a, quite a, uh, uh, weather shift there. So it's good to be back in cycling country. Yeah. You might need to implement the extreme weather protocol there to keep you from, uh, freezing your, uh, freezing your tapas. That's right. Ready, ready for, uh, you know, really, it's almost been like spring training, hasn't it? These last couple of weeks, you know, you got these early season races, everyone's getting a kind of a flavor for us. The road scenes kicking back into gear. And now, you know, we're getting into kind of some of the meteor races, and it really feels like the cycling season has begun. I agree, Hoodie, and uh, that is a great segue. Thank you for that. We are going to talk today about three one-week-long races that just wrapped up. Uh, we're going to talk about Volta Algarve in Portugal, as I butcher my Portuguese pronunciation, uh, Ruta del Sol in uh, in uh, Spain, and then of course we've got the Tour of Oman, which finished a little while back, back on uh, the, the last Thursday last week, and those three races providing some very interesting storylines, some insight into our riders and what they're doing right now, how fit they are, who's winning, who is not winning, and then of course, hoodie, we are excited because this weekend is the, the official start of cobbled classic season in Belgium. We've got Omloop had Neusblad on Saturday. Again, excuse my pronunciation. And then Kern Brussels Kern on Sunday. So lots going on, lots to look ahead to. Let's lead off with Volta Algarve hoodie. Again, my apologies for the pronunciation. Have you ever tried to speak Portuguese? I've never tried it. It seems like a really difficult language. It's an interesting language. I remember one year when I was flying back over to Europe years ago, I was on a flight that went through uh, Portugal. And I kept wondering, like, who are all these Russians on my flight going to Europe, uh, going to Portugal, Spain? And it turned out that, you know, Portuguese, Portuguese is really quite rough. And yeah, it's kind of almost, uh, you know, the most Brazilian is, is the typical, typical kind of Portuguese I think most Americans are used to hearing, and which is much softer and, and smoother on the ear. And when you hear real Portuguese from Portugal, man, it almost sounds like they're speaking Russian, uh, which is kind of a bad comparison. But it's almost like Spanish when you, you're in Spain and you hear them speaking Spanish compared to, you know, the telenovelas, you know, with uh, the, you, know, <laughs> you with watch Mexico. a lot of those. <laughs> watch a lot of those back back in the day. Well, but it's uh, yeah, it's that's a it's a beautiful country, and the Algarve is one of the greatest early season races on the calendar. Yeah, very apropos that you say it's a rough language when spoken in its home country there, because I would say this is a pretty rough race. It's a very challenging, a lot of narrow roads, some steep climbs, really a memorable uh, summit finish on the final day up Alto del Malhau, I think is what you say. That was, uh, it was quite a nasty sting in the tail there on the last day of racing on Sunday. And for me, Hoodie, one of my big storylines coming out of this is the young star, Tadej Pogasar. I think you you have the inside line on the correct pronunciation of this young Slovenian's name, don't you? Oh, well, I've been told it's pronounced uh, Tadej Pogacar. Okay, I was close. Uh, very close. I'm sure we'll get corrected by some, some of our Slovenian listeners. Thank you. Uh, yes, we need that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I had a chance to speak to him actually at the Tour Down Under last month and, uh, you know, you know, he quickly came out of the gates and delivered that I mean, winning the Agarve as really as a neo-pro 
Man, that actually says a lot because that race has some pretty impressive uh, winners on its Parmada as you see some big big GC guys kind of hitting their stride early in the season at that race because it kind of features a time trial, has that mountaintop finish you spoke about. And you see a lot of guys kind of bounce out of the Agave to have pretty good seasons later uh, in the calendar. And to see uh, the young uh, Tour of Avenir winner to, to kind of manhandle that world tour kind of caliber field what a, you know, impressive first win. And come on. Yeah. Pogachar just 20 years old. And what I really picked up on when I was watching that final stage of the race hoodie was just the level of confidence and patience this kid had. He, you know, yes, he's got Fabio Aru at his side during this race, which is a great mentor to have for Grand Tours. Well, maybe not, a, maybe not the perfect mentor. He's pretty good. <laughs> Fabio Aru has his ups and downs, but he, he had he had his team there. He had the UAE team pulling on the front, keeping things in check. But but face it, when when it comes down to it, this kid is he's got he's cold blooded. He saw he saw the attack from Soren Krog Anderson go up the road on the penultimate climb. This this guy was just I think about 29 seconds behind in the overall. So it was a really dangerous move. Not only that, but he was joined by Genetic Stebar. More on that in a second. And. Pogachar just was fine with it. He said, okay, we'll let him go on this climb. We've got enough kilometers before the finish climb. I've got a few teammates to pull on the front and I should be able to 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 nail back that gap on the on the Alto de Mahao. And sure enough, he did exactly that. It was it wasn't like he was showing off and winning the day and totally blowing everyone out of the water, but he rode a calculated race and he knew how much time he need, needed to make up on the, on the leaders. And, uh, he did exactly that to take the overall win. And like you said, this is, this is a big deal to win Algarve. It's, it's not a world tour race, but certainly looking back at the winners of this race, you, you got plenty of, of stars who have, uh, have come home with the, with the yellow jersey Algarve, including Garrett Thomas. Yeah, that's right. It, it's a, it's a pretty, it, it's, a, it's a race with some growing prestige just for that reason. And uh, when I was speaking to some of the UAE people at the Data Under, and they said that they'd already had uh, Pogacar on their radar almost going back two years ago. Uh, you know, the, the pro teams out there these days, they're always on the hunt for young talent. Uh, they want to get riders into their programs in their early 20s and develop them into caliber riders that can win big tours already in their early to mid 20s. Which kind of is, you know, it's it's been a growing trend that's that's been changing and cycling. Uh, you know, you're still seeing uh, riders win Grand Tours well into their 30s. Uh, but you're also seeing riders, I think, these days uh, really getting chances to win and perform at a much younger age. And a guy like Pogachar, I mean, last year he basically uh, won the Vuelta of Avenir, Tour de l'Avenir, almost single-handedly. Didn't really have much of a team. And um, the expectations for him at UAE are sky high. They just think he can develop really into a, a Grand Tour rider. The word is this year he won't race a Grand Tour uh, in his kind of first Neo Pro season. That could change. I mean, last year, you know, Sosa, or not Sosa, uh, Bernal got the uh, <laughs> Egon Bernal got the got the tip, you know, to go to the Tour de France. That was beyond expectations. So teams can change their minds about these things. Like uh, Sepp Kuss last year wasn't supposed to race a Grand Tour. He was going so well, they took him to the Welta. So we'll keep an eye on uh, Pogachar, but man, what a way to start, uh, you know, second grade, second uh, stage race out in your winner. Yeah, very exciting. And I'm uh, looking forward to see what he'll be able to do in his debut World Tour season. Uh, like I alluded to earlier, Hoodie, another notable storyline out of Algarve before we move on is Jenik Stibar, the uh, Czech rider on Jasunik Quickstep, 
winning that final stage. And uh, to me, Hoodie, that's a great indication of what Stebar has got potential to do in the classic season this year. Yeah, the sharp eye there, Spencer. I mean, Stebar, he's been like that guy that everyone wants to see win, right? I mean, everyone loves Stebar. Everyone loves cyclocross. Uh, he's, he's been on that quick step team, which sometimes you see, I mean, the uh, riders, you know, so many big riders on that team. It's hard to even just make the selection for some of the, those uh, spring classic races. And then B, just have the, have the dynamics stack up to allow you to be in a position to win. A lot of times uh, it doesn't work out for it. You've seen riders in the past, like Gilbert last year, I think had a great spring classics, but he never was really in position to win just because they were racing as a team. So the fact that Terpstra is gone, uh, you know, they could open up some more possibilities for Mr. Uh, Mr. Stebar to get chances to win. Yeah, that's exactly something I was thinking, given that uh, generally it's it seems like Quickstep has had to scale it back a little for 2019. Yes, they're still a, a great team and they're, they're still going to win a lot of races, but I think that they're not quite as able to field a full team of superstars. And I think it might be opening the door for Stebar. Although my question for you is, is does he have what it takes to win a race like Perrier Bay or win a race like Tour of Flanders because he's come close many times, but he just never seems to quite have the edge, especially when he's up against a guy like Peter Sagan, for instance, who is, of course, you know, the guy to watch at the classics right now. Yeah, I think especially at a race like um, uh, Roe Bay could fit Steve Barr perhaps better than any of the other classics because I think he's been twice their second over the last couple of years. And Robay is just the kind of race you just keep throwing the darts. You'll eventually hit the bullseye. And um, I think that this year there'll be a little bit more space for him to move in that race because you do have some younger riders coming up in that franchise who will be getting chances at other races. But I think at Flanders and Robay, you'll see uh, Stebar and Gilbert really trying to step up and take those big wins for the team. And I don't know, man. I think that I think Quick Step they'll still be a huge factor this year in the classics. Uh, they lost Terpstra. I think that was probably just a financial move. They probably couldn't really quit, couldn't match the offer he was getting from other teams. And, uh, you know, they have such a deep bench there that they can still fill up their squad with, you know, eight or seven, you know, really capable caliber riders who can, who can perform as a block and, and deliver results in almost every major one-day race in the Belgian calendar. Well, there you have it. You just got to keep trying at Roubaix and eventually you'll win it. I, I think that'll be my plan, Hoodie, for the next five or ten years. I'll just uh, keep heading over there, try to win it, and, eh, you know, who knows? Matthew Heyman did it, right? I mean, come on. That, that's how he did it. <laughs> Let's move on to Ruta del Sol in Spain. Uh, this is – it's really similar to Algarve, right? It's It's got a time trial halfway through. It's got a few uphill finishes. Personally, I get so annoyed that these races run concurrently because I feel like they need more space to breathe and more potential to attract the stars to one, you know, so that it's not as much of a split calendar, right? I mean, it's why why are they always on the same schedule like this, Hoodie? Yeah, you know, it's, I've, always, I've often wondered that myself. I never could get a straight answer out of the organizations because, you know, it'd be ideal to have them, you know, back-to-back over two weekends, right? It'd yeah. Have one. Yeah, have them start, have the one race finish on the Tuesday, the next one start on the Thursday, and you can get them really caravan because they're obviously side by side geographically. It'd be quite easy to get, you know, really good full two two weeks of racing uh, in that same part of Spain. But I think the the, the way the Ruta sl- slots in with the rest of the Spanish calendar, 
I don't think they want to change their dates to accommodate the agave race. And the agave race evidently is happy with where they are. So I think there's like each organizer has the reasons of why they want to kind of keep that same spot on the weekend, even though, you know, it just doesn't really make sense in the, in the bigger picture. But the calendar is so full these days, it's really hard to, you know, because uh, I think agave kind of fits in more with the French calendar. So if you move the agave, it's going to mess up some of the other races. So it's kind of a double track in these early spring races. So there's plenty of races for all the teams to go to. But I would love to actually, as you described, to see those two races back to back because I think it would make for an interesting block of racing. But the Ruta, because they're both great races, great terrain, great fields, great weather usually. Yeah, I agree. And I, I would imagine for the star riders, it's probably almost nice to have a built-in excuse not to face your top rivals in February <laughs> because it can be very misleading as far as what your form actually is and what what your potential is to really build into a major event like Tour de France. For instance, looking back to, I think it was Valenciana, seeing Garrett Thomas in that race, he he did not look particularly fit or or fast. He was looking a little soft, uh, which is which is fine. I think uh, February is not the right time to be in top form if you're going to try to win the Tour de France again. Yeah, I mean, oh, Garrett Thomas, I mean, hats off to, off him to being uh, honest about it, but he said that he, would, he admitted he was far off his top form, obviously. Yeah, he just wanted he just wanted to get his uh, racing legs and and get a you know kind of old school uh, ass whipping to get himself motivated <laughs> for the rest of the season. He said I had a chance to talk to him uh, last earlier this month uh, at, uh, at at the Valenciana, and he and he admitted that he was uh, you know he went, he didn't quite do a Yan Ulrich you know back in the day oh yeah when right puff up over the winning he wasn't quite at that level but he admitted that he was uh, enjoying his. Uh, status as a tour de france winner you know he was going to uh, spent a lot of time in the united states actually yeah. went to a lot of basketball games and uh, i think he went to a hockey game and uh, spent some time out in california so he was enjoying life a little bit something that uh, man the pros these days that if you just even if you take off that extra couple of weeks in the offseason it's gonna pinch you in these early season races, but he's confident that he can get back in top shape for the Tour de France. Yeah, and I actually had a chance to interview him out in L.A. Uh, back in January, and he's definitely having a good time. He went and saw an NFL playoff game. Yeah, he, he loves America, which is pretty cool. But not to get too far off track here, let's get back to the matter at hand. Ruta del Sol and uh, Jakob Fulsang, the, da- the Danish uh, GC hopeful. He's sort of always been lurking in the top 10, top five of these Grand Tour GCs that he that he tries for. Hoodie, is this is this win, is this an indication that Fulsang maybe is going to have a chance at actually winning a Grand Tour in 2019? We'll see. I mean, he's always been hyped as, as, a, as a Grand Tour rider. You, you one time, sometimes you wonder if maybe a guy like Fulsang would be better off going off to try to win a race like the Giro or the Welta rather than just going all in for the tour every year when he's, you know, by his own admission, he's not going to be able to follow the guys like the Frooms uh, when the accelerations come in the big, big mountains. But, you know, he's won big races like the Dauphiné and been competitive in those, those one-week races. So, you know, why not go to the Giro and try to win? It's, that's what a lot of guys have done, uh, guys like Simon Yates and, and Dumoulin. You know, that's kind of a, a, a road that I think really helps riders in their GC development that for just for whatever reason – you know, Fuglesong has consistently gone to the tour and consistently been in the top 10. Um, he's had some bad luck going for the GC sometimes, but, you know, even this year he just said, uh, you know, he thought he was he was going great, but he, he, he just could not follow those top accelerations. 
So we'll see. I mean, I know all the Danish uh, fans love Google's song, and they hope that he can, uh, you know, get close to that podium this year. Yeah, ended up 12th in the 2018 tour overall. So, yeah, it's just not really going to cut it if you want to if you want to truly stake your claim as a GC leader. Back in 2013, he was seventh in the tour, uh, which is, yeah, I mean, that's that's the type of result I would want to see out of him. But man, you know, now we're getting to a point where he is uh, 33 years old. He's not gonna he's not gonna get a whole lot better at these Grand Tour GCs. He's kind of reaching his peak, so you gotta wonder. And um, I will say this though, Hoodie, I think that based on what we've seen in the last few weeks, his Astana team is about as good as it's been in a long time in terms of maybe giving him that support he might need if he wants to make an impact on the tour, which he is, by the way, slated to do in 2019. Astana team now with six GC wins so far in 2019, and we're only in the end of February. Yeah, I mean, they've been the hottest team so far of 2019, without a doubt. Uh, you have to wonder if it was uh, Lawrence DeVries and his uh, Astana rap video that did. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that has to be the difference, right, Spencer? I mean, come on. You know? Yeah. They're not... They're not from Uzbekistan. They're not from Kazakhstan. They're from Kazakhstan. Sorry, I messed up the guy's line. Well, but. you know, let's <laughs> just let's just play a little of that rap right now so that we can remind our listeners of what kind of inspiration these riders have in the back of their minds as they go to these early season races. Our leaders of the gang, this is Jacob Pugelsang. And Lunchenko on the couple champagne bottle. It's the best Superman climbing fast as his plan. With support of the team, they are like a machine. Ooh, that's good stuff, Hoodie. I bet you listen to that all the time back at your crib. Oh, man, I got that uh, right next to Snoop, Snoop Dogg in uh, the old school. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Uh, but but seriously, though, Astana, like I said, six GC wins. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about Tour of Oman since it's a little bit old news at this point, but uh, Alexei Litsenko pretty much had his way with the field in Oman won a couple stages, won the overall. It was uh, really not even close, if you if you admit. It's just uh, no one was really challenging him there, huh? Yeah, I think uh, the team, uh, you know, I think the team was coming in uh, with a couple of key new riders coming with its Itzagire brothers coming on. Um, they're going to bring some new kind of uh, ambition and motivation to that team. Luis Leon Sanchez is healthy. I mean, he's kind of one of these timeless guys like El Valverde. He's been performing well and won as already as well this season. Um, it's one of those teams that, you know, they've had some good riders on there. Of course, they had Nibali and Aru have left, and now they're kind of stepping up their game. you got to wonder what happens behind the scenes there sometimes. It's one of these teams that just seems opaque sometimes from the outside. It's kind of hard to get a good read on what's going on there. But uh, I think that uh, – Obviously, what they're going into this season is they're they're flying. They're they're the best performing team so far consistently in these early season races. I imagine you saw them when you were down into Tour Down Under. Was there a certain kind of energy around the team there? Did you feel like, oh wow, Astana's Astana has has something going on this year? It feels a little different. Yeah, it was hard to read too much. I was talking to Sanchez a little bit every day, and he was just talking about how he is real motivated for the season because he had that horrible crash last year, took him out of the tour. And he still feels like he can be competitive. And it just sent, it, he was just saying how the team was just really motivated to perform, you know, to be able to kind of prove that they're capable of winning big races without the likes of Nibali, who already left two years ago, and Aru, who left last year. I think there's a lot of ambition on that team just to kind of show who they are. We'll see if it carries on. I mean, sometimes with these early season races, 
it serves as a barometer for what that comes later on in the season. But sometimes riders could hit, you know, kind of hit these early season wins and then they kind of fade away when the media of the season comes. So we'll have to keep an eye on Astana and see what they really do and, uh, you know, really follow up on this story and say, you know, what, what is Astana doing that's different than the last couple of years? Yeah, definitely. Tour de France is a long way away, but we do have some classics coming up right right this weekend, which is very exciting. Omloop's coming up. And the last point I wanted to make when it comes to Ruta del Sol is Matteo Trenton on the Mitchelton Scott team, the European champion. He won two stages there, and boy, I got to think he's going to be one of the top favorites for the cobblestone season opener in uh, Omloop. Yeah, Trenton, you know, kind of a guy last year, I think he had, uh, had a crash kind of took him off the rails a little bit in some of his key races, but he still came back and got a couple of the big wins in his first season at, at uh, Mitchelton Scott. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a rider who's capable of kind of, um, you know, finishing in a reduced bunch who can get over the cob as well, who's a rider who can kind of, one of these uh, total terrenos who can kind of perform in different kinds of, uh, different kinds of races in the spring classics. And he's like an old school Italian uh, warrior. He loves the spring classics. I mean, the Italians really had a deep tradition of winning in the Northern Classics, kind of going back in the 90s and early 2000s. And I was speaking to him last year, and he's quite keen on trying to revive that Italian presence in, in the Northern Cobbles. Yeah, like the old Mappe team. Let's talk a little more generally about Omloop to start off here, Hoodie. So this race comes on Saturday. It's considered the kickoff to the cobblestone season. What are some what are some of the key highlights of what makes this race special? Why it's important to these riders, and uh, and wh- what type of rider does well at this sort of race? Yeah, I mean it's the, it's the traditional kickoff to the Belgian calendar. So already right there, you've got just all the hype has been building over the winter. Everyone just in you know it's everyone in Belgium just loves the racing. So they've been waiting all season. You know to, after the cyclocross is winding down, this is the first big real big road race in Belgium. So everything just builds up to this. It's like opening day of the football season. The Belgians go crazy. All the top pros want to win. And, you know, you see some big winners. And it does feature cobbles. does get out and hit some of the bergs. It gives you a really good a, a first kind of preview of what's really in store, you know, really still a month away when we get into the, uh, to the true Northern Classics. But it's the opening weekend up there in Ghent. It's always a big party. I mean, drinking throwing back some Belgian beers and watching bike racing, smelling <laughs> that uh, the manure st- smell is in the air already in spring in Belgium. You know, sometimes people like to talk about the curse of the Omloop, where the winner of Omloop maybe peaks a little too soon and doesn't quite have what it takes to be a real contender at Tour of Flanders. Would you say that still is the case, or is that type of thing that's maybe – Maybe a little bit of an old-fashioned uh, old wives' tale because, uh, you know, you look at uh, Michael Valgren, who won last year in 2018. Sure, he's not exactly a Flanders guy, but uh, he he came correct in the later part of the of the spring season, and he won the Amstel Gold Race, uh, which is, you know, that's a big one for sure, especially for a younger guy like him. And then, of course, we have Greg Van Avermaet, who went on to win the Paris-Roubaix in 2017 after he won the Omloop that year. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, winning a race like Omloop and having a a risk of a curse, that's probably a a, a bet that most of the top pros would take. (laughs) It's a pretty pretty prestigious race to have on your Palmares. And like you said, you just rattled off some of the former winners. You know, Jabez won it twice. Uh, You know, it is a prestige win. You know, Fletcher won it back in the day, Hussoft. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it ranks up there as, you know, one of the top 
one day, you know, class semi classics that are on the calendar, you know, below the monuments. So I think the riders, they're all racing, you know, I think, you know, they're not going into the race hundred percent. So I think it's been part of that whole argument. If you, if you're peaking now, late February, early March, you know, will you have enough gas in the legs to still be performing, you know, by the time you get into mid April. So that's why, you know, you've seen winners coming out of Omloop, you know, really fly, perhaps hitting their peak a little bit earlier than they wanted to and not having quite the gas to hold on the way through the, through the full uh, Classics calendar. Yeah, and I guess perhaps maybe that's the reason why you don't see Peter Sagan on the start list for Omloop. And he hasn't really done Omloop for a couple years now, which I, I got to think is a little disappointing for the fans. If they're really excited for cobblestone season, they're ready to go and kind of the biggest star of that that part of the year is is not present yeah last year his trainer and uh sports director pachi vila said that uh he, he didn't take the start last year and he's not racing again this year it's just um they were saying that it, for the exact reason they didn't want to put sagan in the pressure to try to win because he tries to win every time he starts um because you know they really want him to be at his peak coming into uh the meat of the classic season and already trying to be really strong from San Remo all the way through Liège, which is part of Sagan's calendar this year. He's, he's doing Liège, I think, uh, for maybe the first time of his career, but he's taken a pretty serious stab at it with that new course. So he wants to be strong for a pretty long window. So that's why they're kind of holding Sagan back, not let, not holding him back from racing this next weekend, because he's had already a busy calendar race in Australia and in South America. So he's, he's training now in altitude, skipping this first Belgian weekend for the second year in a row. But that idea is they want him just flying unfettered uh, come spring classic season. Well, that's what we all want to see. We certainly love those big battles. Milan San Remo, of course, being one of the first real major ones, but we'll get to that in a few weeks. The other thing to talk about for this weekend is Kern Brussels Kern on Sunday. Hoodie, I always feel like Kern kind of plays second fiddle to Omloop. It does not get quite the same attention or excitement as Omloop. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think that it's because um, the courses are a little bit different. Uh, Kern Brussels Kern faces more of a sprinter. Usually it's kind of a mm. you know reduced bunch sprint, even though we've seen some great, uh, you know, some kind of breakaways and yeah. people. Kind Jasper of- Stuyven, yeah, that was a good one. Eh? Yeah. That was a good one. So you do see you do see some of the exciting racing at both days, but you don't know. Omloop now is world tour. Kern Brussels Kern still is a kind of European tour. So just I think by the nature of the course, the fact that it's the opening day, Omloop has always kind of had that prestige. It's an older race as well, and then uh, Kern Brussels Kern's coming in just doesn't quite have the you know it's more like a shell de Prague, shell de Prise, you know, kind of in the middle of the of the monuments. But I think both weekend races are big. I mean, you'll see riders skip one and focus on the, the, the day, you know, the next day, either one or the other, because it's pretty hard to actually race both back-to-back at 100% uh, to try to go for the win. So you'll see guys who think they have a better chance of winning Kern will skip Omloop and uh, vice versa. Yeah, it, um, Omloop, it's a bit of a, pre, a prelude to uh, the types of terrain you see at Tour of Flanders, those cobbled bergs and that sort of thing. But uh we're looking forward to seeing both of them, and uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm definitely I'm excited for the cobbles to kick off, and uh, certainly around here in Boulder, Colorado, very 
foggy and cold the last day or so, so it gets you in the mood for a little Belgian racing. Uh, while on the other hand, we do have some Middle Eastern racing that is continuing at the UAE Tour through the end of this week, and our fearless leader, Fred Dreyer, is out there right now, Hoodie. He is covering the race, and you can find all of his stories on velonews.com, and we're happy to have a little bit of audio from him uh, coming straight from UAE, where he spoke with Brent Bookwalter, the American who uh, made a switch to Mitchelton Scott this year, the same team um, as Matteo Trenton, who we were just talking about. So uh, we're going to dive right into this interview with Bookwalter, and he talks about his transfer to Mitchelton Scott, his motivation he has to keep racing, the Australian culture of the Mitchelton team, which is very distinct, and it's it's the type of thing that makes it, I think they're fun, right, Hoodie? They're, it's a fun team. You, just, you see they have a good time at the races, don't they? Yeah, I and mean, if, if you hear that a lot of times within the Peloton. You know, there's certain teams you want to be on. There's certain teams that have a reputation of being pretty loose and fun. Other teams, I mean, a lot of times you can just see it in the team hotels. You'll, you know, a lot of times you'll have two or three teams in the same, uh, sharing the same restaurant every night. And you'll look over at some of these other teams and everyone's kind of dour and there's not a lot of conversation. You look over at the Mitchelton Scott table and those guys are always laughing and having a good time. And I think that shows spree decor kind of translate onto the racing as well. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's hear from Brent Bookwalter. All right. You're turning into the uh, Velo News podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer. I am in a town somewhere in the United Arab Emirates and I have flown halfway across the world to have a conversation with Brent Bookwalter when we probably could have done this at some point in the States, but you know, we're, we're international men. We like to travel around the world and, and go to bike races. Uh, so Brent Bookwalter, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Happy to be here. So Brent, you are uh, one of our esteemed rider diarists. And over the last few months, uh, readers on the website have been reading about um, a few different parts of, you know, your experiences through pro cycling and, the biggest experience it sounds like you've had in the last few months is changing teams. You know, you started off with BMC. Uh, you were on that team for, what was it, 10 years? 11 years. 11 years. And you've now made the jump to Mitchelton Scott. I thought it was really interesting writing about um, the process of finding a new team. So, you know, take me through, you know, when you found out that, you know, BMC was going to be downsizing a bit, changing directions. What is your process at that point for finding, you know, a, a new spot to land? That's a complicated process for sure. Um, you know, so like you said, so much of my history is with BMC, my whole pro career, really. Uh, so, yeah, at first it was scary and sad and um, kind of frustrating and, um, you know, disappointing. I think um, BMC contributed a ton to the, the pro peloton over the past decade, and I was really proud to be a part of that. But um, at the same time, recognized that, um, the changing within that team was also a good time and good sort of spark um, for some change that I probably also needed and was ready for as well. Um, so from then it was just a matter of, uh, yeah, finding finding the right fit, finding the right opportunity, um, which was no easy task. Um, last year, as it seems like we say every year now, um, it just gets more competitive and more doggy dog out there and a little more desperate um, as far as the job market's concerned. So there, there were definitely moments where I thought, like, you know, is this it? Like, am I gonna am I gonna race again next year? Um, were you at all thinking of domestic U.S. teams or pro Conti teams, or did you was your heart really set on staying at the World Tour level? No, I think uh, that was definitely something that entered my mind. Um, I think I'm at the age you know, of the experience where I would be excited and inspired to, you know, be a be an older older guy, more experienced guy, and a younger, more inexperienced team. 
Um, but at the same time, I do still have that spark and fire to like be competing at the top level and really pushing myself and making sure I'm squeezing everything out of myself, um, you know, before I go that, that direction. So I was really open to anything and, um, I, I explored that route a little bit and honestly, no, like no doors really opened or nothing presented itself. Um, so ironically, there was more opportunity in the in the world tour for me than there was. So now we've heard horror stories over the years of what the rider transfer market can be, and you know you're putting feelers out through your own personal relationships. You maybe have an agent who's negotiating or who's like trying to find these relationships. With uh, when it came to Mitchelton Scott, like how did you find out that they were indeed looking for a new rider? How did those? Uh, what was the pathway like? Um, I'd say it was something that didn't just happen last year. It was something um, that had been kind of in the background um, happening for a couple of years. Um, you know, we're we're at the same races with these teams, you know, year after year. So I think just by virtue of proximity, um, you know, you, you do have the, uh, the opportunity to interact and get to know some of these directors or some of these riders. And that's really the first step to sort of identifying a group that maybe I would find a good as a good fit. Um, so, you know, in the years preceding, I saw, I saw Mitchelton Scott as I looked at them and kind of thought, Hey, they have, you know, they have a good vibe. It looks like culturally they're compatible with me. Um, looked like they had good leadership and good, good resources, good support. Um, so sort of, you know, began talking out of them, talking to them a little bit in years past and, um, and just laying the groundwork and, um, you know, things never lined up and the doors didn't open and I was happy to, happy to stay at BMC in past years, um. But yeah, fortunately, it was a good fit with this year where they had some roster vacancies that were sort of my type of rider, my position. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, then, you know, the agents come in, the agents get involved. Um, but, you know, I'd say, you know, myself, I was still still fairly involved. I was still talking to, to Matt White, their, their head sports director, and I was involved in the process. And I think the fact that it was a team where I could be involved in that process was a good sign also that it was a place for me. You know, I didn't want to go somewhere um, where I had no interaction with the team prior, mm. was unable to talk to their director, being, you know, I didn't want to just be a number or a body that was filled into some spot. I wanted it to be somewhat personal and, and part of the process. So you were on this team that had its roots in, you know, American and Swiss management. Um, you've come to this team that has its roots in Australian management. You know, from what we know about Australians, they like to joke around, like to drink beer. <laughs> it's definitely sort of a, a cultural persuasion on that. Um, how have you found it um, from a cultural standpoint? You know, you're two months into the season fitting in with this team. Yeah, it still feels very new, um, and I, I like it, but it is also very different. Um, yeah, BMC definitely had that element of that Swiss precision exactness, um, and the, the Australians have a little more of the, the laid back. Um, it's a little more fun, a little more easy. Um, that's not to say they don't take it very seriously, but... I think that Australian sort of DNA and culture and identity and even some of the Australians that they've had for the past eight years, um, they really impact the team's culture. And, and we see that, you know, from you know the race meetings to the training camps to being on the airplane with them, traveling to the airport. Um, so, yeah, it's it's fun. Um, I'm really enjoying it. I'm loving the group, but it's challenging. It's uh, I didn't realize until I was sort of within the new group how much I had sort of took in the old system for granted and just banked on that and it was just sort of automatic in my subconscious of how I how I existed so um it's challenging so the other the second column you wrote for us was all about um your interactions with the media you know you've been a pro cyclist for a good chunk of your life you've had to sit down with pesky reporters like me and <laughs> field questions and you know I'm curious 
you know, in reading that blog, have you ever had a, an antagonistic experience with media? Have you ever had, a, in, in, you know, an experience with a reporter where it was like, man, it just wasn't really, it was like kind of testy? Oh, yeah, I'm trying to think of one specific example. Um, yeah, I think the most emotionally charged and testy moments are always just those post-race, um, you know, high-energy circumstances where that reporter is looking to capture that emotion and energy that, you know, um, we just experienced in the final, and we're just, you know, wanting to, you know, as the Australians say, bugger off and yeah. get, get lost. Um, so, yeah, that's challenging. Um, but, yeah, generally, I think uh, I think as pro cyclists, we are so accessible to the media um, that I feel like, in general, they don't have to push that hard, and you guys are usually a pretty good group to work with. Yeah, I've, you know, seen this in my own experience where sometimes, you you know, you do want to get a soundbite out of a guy, but maybe it's after a crushing defeat or after, like, a near miss, and you can tell that the mood is really down. And it always takes a little bit of navigating the personal relationship or, you know, seeing where a guy is at before you come in guns blazing. You know, do you have any memories of, I don't know, having almost one you know, agony of defeat moments where you kind of have to collect yourself before you um, talk to the press? Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time. One of the most challenging aspects of that, that dynamic is that, you know, you guys watch the races on TV um, or you're listening to the race radio, you're getting, you're getting the updates, but... You know, I'd really say you still only see about, at best, 50% of what's happening out there. Um, so, you know, we come to the line and, and the media has sort of an impression of what happens or how we, how we faltered or how the team allegedly fell apart or where we didn't have it. Um, and, you know, really there's there's countless other things that unfolded. And um, it's, it's hard not to get uh, defensive and a little riled up about, you know, people not being able to see that. Do there tend to be a, a specific national media that seem to know the sport better? I mean, I know a lot of American media, especially if you're like racing to a Utah and you have local reporters there, they're kind of trying to understand the sport or asking some more basic questions. Like what national media tends to really, really know cycling? Um, I'd say like, uh, you know, the Belgians think they know it. Yeah. <laughs> they, they seem to be the most confident and uh, almost cocky and secure with what they think is happening. And they love to judge and critique. Um, yeah, I'd say the oh, Americans... Oh, Brent, why didn't you pull through? Yeah. Well, for, you're not strong today? For what? sure, it's easy. Uh, for me, you step on the pedals and uh, you put it in the big plates. I think it's normal to win. <laughs> but it's not. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think actually, you know, probably for me... Um, the Americans, you guys have the best understanding because, like you just said, you flew halfway across the world to be over here too. Um, and that, that dynamic is deeply rooted in our experience in the races, um, being away from home and being in this foreign place and being on streets we didn't grow up on. So um, I relate well to the American journalists. You know, your most recent column was about the Grand Fondo that you put on. The book Walter Binge um, goes on. Uh, it's in the early season, right? It's December or January? Uh, October. October. I actually have to go sign in now. All right. <laughs> but Bill Walter Binge, Bill Walter check Binge. it out. Yeah, it's October uh, 25th this year in Nashville, North Carolina, where um, I always love going home and going back to. And um, it's a great way to celebrate the end of the race season and um, uh, you know introduce some, some fellow riders to some of my pro colleagues and have a great time on the bike. Do you see that as a business for you after you retire? Oh, right now it's, it's a bad... Uh, it's a net negative business. <laughs> um, we're just trying to raise some money for some good, good regional causes. Um, but yeah, as far as um, you know, putting on an event and connecting with people and showing them um, the love and joy of cycling in an amazing place, I'd like to think that I could translate that into some sort of post-career opportunity. Brent, go get him. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks, Fred. Sorry All to right. cut it short. No worries. <laughs> All right. Take care, man. Thanks, man. That's perfect. All right.
Well, Hoodie Bookwalter, always one of our favorite guys to hear from. And um, he's, he's, he likes us American journalists, too, which is nice to hear. Yeah, Brent is uh, he's, he's one of the nicest guys in the Peloton, smart guy, interesting character, you know, really part of a core part of that BMC team for, I think he and another, uh, one of his other guys, uh, Weiss, were the two guys from that team from when it started as a little pro county team all the way through winning the tour with Cadell through the last years with uh, Richie Port. So it was good to see Brett get that chance to switch to Mitchelton. He, he says he's pretty happy at that team. And, and uh, you know, that team needs riders like uh, Brett Bookwalter to kind of guide these guys like the Yates brothers around. And, and uh, you know, Swain Tuft is gone uh, racing at Rally. So, that's a perfect role for Brett to slot into. He has that experience of winning Grand Tours, of winning a Tour de France. And that's just what uh, that team needs to have kind of a core center of, of kind of a road captain. Well, he'll have to still work on uh, his barefoot meditation in the woods if he really wants to fill Swain Tuff's role at the uh, Mitchelton team. But I, I'm sure there's time for that. So, Hoodie, let's wrap this up. Let's uh, wrap it up with a few predictions for this weekend's Cobblestone Classics opener. You want to go first for Omloop? Oh, I'll, I'll go with uh, everyone's uh, favorites. Uh, Could have, should have, would have been uh, Tim Wellens. He's mm. had a pretty good, uh, pretty good start to his season. Maybe it's not the, uh, you know, it's not the ideal course for him, but I think you know he's he's obviously already firing on uh, on good form and uh, got a couple of wins at, at Ruda. So you know. Sometimes you got to think outside the box. If you're flying now, you could, that's a race you could win. I agree. And uh, let's not forget that it was won from a small breakaway last year. So not out of the question. For me, Hoodie, I'm going to say Matteo Trenton, Matteo Trenton. He's just on great form. And I think maybe this will stay together this time and be more of a select bunch sprint rather than the little breakaway that we saw last year. Now, let's move on to Kern Brussels Kern hoodie. This one, a little, little different. Like we said, it's more of a sprinter's race. What are you thinking for this? Oh, uh, I'm guessing who you'll pick. So I'll go with somebody else. Maybe uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with DeMar. You know, he's, uh, you know, the big Frenchman. He's, he's always good for uh, a couple of big wins during this season. He, you know, he won St. Remo couple of years under controversial conditions yeah people forget and, yeah <laughs> yeah people forget and he's um you know he's he's a rider who who can step up and win these kinds of big races i, I kind of like demar's profile so we'll go with a french winner on the belgian roads yep demar couple second places in the bag coming out of algarve so not a bad choice for me i'll just go with the obvious one which is dylan gronawagen and he is of course your defending champion from kern last year expert sprinter from the Netherlands and uh, also a winner at stage four in Algarve, which uh, was uh, one place ahead of Mr. DeMar. So I think Groningen has got a great shot for Kern, but it should be an exciting weekend of racing and certainly not one that's easy to predict, which is why we love it. Right, Hoodie? That's right. And I, and I will add a little uh, caveat to my uh, Kern Bristol Kern. Oh, I'll, yeah. Okay. I'll, All right. I'll throw, I'll throw in uh, Jasper Philipson of UAE Team Emirates. He's uh, being uh, bandied about as the new Tom Bonin. Mm. Got that, got that uh, sprit win uh, at the Tour Right Under when Caleb Ewan was disqualified for headbutting. And then uh, came out of the Agrave, didn't win, didn't get a win, but I think he finished uh, third in one of the sprints. And he's slated to race both weekend races. And, and then Belgian, they're just so hyped up for this guy. This is the guy they think that can be the next big breakout star. You know, he kind of decided not to join Quickstep or one of the big, uh, one of the big Belgian teams, and, and join UAE because where he thought that he would get a chance to race all these big races. Where you know, if you go to Quickstep, 
you know, you're not going to make the selection for every race on that competitive team. So he'll be in these races both Saturday and Sunday. So watch watch for him to kind of maybe deliver the big ride and, and that belt for those goat bombers. All right, Hoodie. Well, I wouldn't usually allow a double pick, but you did a nice job of explaining it. So I'll let it pass this time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, stay tuned for the Velo News podcast next week as we break down all the action from Omloop and Kern. Enjoy the bike racing this weekend and stay tuned to velonews.com for stories on all of these races as well as the UAE Tour, which is ongoing with our dear, sweet leader, Fred Dreyer, at the helm covering that race. Thanks for listening.